This is the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin. My guest is Doug Ullman. Doug Ullman, at just 29 years old, he is a three-time cancer survivor, founder of the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults, and president of Lance Armstrong's foundation, Live Strong. Doug, your work at the Ullman Cancer Fund caught the attention of Lance Armstrong's organization, Live Strong. Describe your position at Live Strong. Sure. Well, initially when I came to Austin and joined the Lance Armstrong Foundation, I was tasked with overseeing the programs of the foundation. And so we really kind of dove right deep into this notion of survivorship and quality of life and what programs were cancer survivors most in need of. So I spent the first four years of my tenure here working on the programs. And then in the last two years, I was positioned more on the management side. Now have just recently taken over as president of the organization. So I'm now responsible for all of the day-to-day operations of the organization, including the programs as well as the development side and, and internal infrastructure. And I can tell you that it is for a cancer survivor and someone who's dedicated their lives to helping others with cancer, it is an absolute dream job. Mm. And Livestrong is not strictly devoted to young adults with cancer. It's for everyone, is it not? Correct, correct. The foundation actually was started as a testicular cancer organization and in the first two years then expanded to urologic cancers. And then after Lance's visibility grew and we realized that Lance actually himself was dealing with so many of the issues that we consider to be survivorship issues, we really started to focus on that because of the growing population of of cancer survivors. And now we're reaching out beyond survivorship, but still have several focus areas, one of which is is now young adult oncology. Yeah. How how has your job helped you to further advocate for young adults? Well, you know, everybody here at the office knows that that's my uh, passion. And so I think they're excited to start to explore it rigorously. Uh, here at the foundation. But for so many reasons, it makes a lot of sense. And not only am I a young adult cancer survivor, but Lance is as well. And one of the things I like to highlight for people that that they often forget or or often gets lost is that Lance, in his own story, had a two-year period of time from the time he finished treatment to the time he won the first Tour de France. And during that two years, he had significant what I call survivorship issues and more importantly, significant young adult issues. He did not have insurance, and if it weren't for one of his sponsors to come in and provide that insurance, he would have had an astronomical amount of debt or or medical bill. He wasn't sure if he would ever return to work again. So here he was at 25 years old, not sure what he was going to do with his life. He had issues with fertility. He had issues with dating and social relationships. I mean, so many of the things we hear day in and day out from young adults, and I think sometimes that gets lost and people see Lance as this champion and forget the real human, realistic side of his own cancer survivorship. So for he and I, it's a natural to be a bigger advocate for young adult oncology issues, both from the research side as well as the the psychosocial and emotional side. Yeah, he seems, you know, he's done these superhuman athletic feats, so it seems hard to imagine that he also went through the very common um, problems that young adults with cancer go through. Exactly, exactly. You are both athletes, and before being diagnosed, you had accomplished some terrific athletic feats yourself, and since then, tell us about it. Well, you know, I was very fortunate to grow up playing soccer and just an amazing sport for anyone, I think, but gifted enough to, again, go to Brown University and play on one of the top teams in the country and something that I always cherished and was excited about. And, and then, obviously, was diagnosed with cancer and, 
and that kind of changed. You know, your priorities change and your perspective changes. And I still love the sport, and I was able to return and play competitively again. But it, but it never was quite the same. But when I graduated college, I had an amazing opportunity to go to the Himalayan mountains and run in a hundred mile marathon. And it was one of those things where I remember vividly getting a phone call from an individual who said, we've read about your story and we're putting together a team of athletes to go do something over in the Himalayas. And the team of athletes is going to be both able-bodied and disabled athletes. And we'd like for you to go. And this was August of 1999. And he said, and by the way, we're going in October. And I thought to myself, here I was a soccer player. I'd never run more than you know seven or eight or ten miles at one time, and they want me to go run 100 miles. And had I not had cancer, I would have hung up right away and never thought twice about it and walked out of the room. But for some reason, I, I kept listening, and I kept listening, and it became a real easy decision. And it was one of those transformative experiences in my life when I completed that. And I remember crossing the finish line, and I remember thinking to myself, I can trust my body again. I feel... I feel physically fit and I feel truly alive. And, you know, people talk a lot about cancer being the best thing that's ever happened to them and giving them new perspective and new priorities, and, and I'm a firm believer in that. But that experience in particular was one that, that just made it very clear that, that good things come, come out of seemingly bad situations. 100 miles at what altitude? Yeah, we, were, we, were, uh, we started at 6,000, and we went all the way up to about 13 or 14 and back and forth in between. And it was the most beautiful place in the world I've ever seen. And, and I said to somebody once, I said, you know, it was like standing on top of the world. And they said it really was standing on top of the world. Um, but uh, it was it was phenomenal, wow. phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, that really is interesting. And, and you said for some reason. You're not sure what the reason is. And I'm wondering if you just suppose, is it that you were feeling strong for having survived cancer and wanted to further it? Or was it a test of yourself? What do you think? Well, I think that, I think it's all, all of the above. I mean, obviously I was an athlete and, and had a certain level of competitiveness and wanting to do something, but I think cancer is it's, it's strange. The, the resilience that we see in people who've experienced cancer is phenomenal. And there's this underlying theme of wanting to give back and wanting to do something more. And whether that's work in the cancer field, whether that's volunteer or raise money or participate in a, in a walk or a run or a bike ride. I mean, people genuinely want to feel like they are doing something. And, and I think for me, this was just an extension of wanting to give back and wanting to raise awareness and, and wanting to do something that, quite honestly, I never would have had the opportunity to do had it not been for the illness. Um, I noticed on the Livestrong website that you have an army of runners. Correct. We are very focused on really providing people with those opportunities whether they want to run or walk or ride a bike or just be an advocate or just volunteer. I personally feel like the only reason people won't do that is because they don't see a way to do it. and they don't. It's not provided easily for them. And so one of our kind of unstated missions is to make sure that, that people have a way to participate, not in the foundation necessarily, but in, in this cause, in this movement that we're, that we're trying to create. Mm-hmm. There was another marathon that you ran that I would think was significant, and that was the one that you ran with Lance Armstrong? Yeah, we just ran the New York Marathon in November of last year, and first and foremost, the best marathon in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've done I've done 10 of them now, I think, and by far this is the best. This is my first New York, and the, the amount of community and support and just encouragement and excitement around that, that race is, is just unparalleled. 
And for, for Lance and I, I mean, this was our 10-year anniversary year of both of our diagnoses, and we had committed to run the marathon in, in that regard, and it was just a lot of fun. I mean, it was difficult and exhilarating and incredibly fun at the same time. So what's your next challenge? Well, I always I always volunteer here in Austin to run the marathon here, which is in two weeks, so I'm going to struggle through that. <laughs> Honestly, I think Lance and I are talking about doing the New York Marathon again. It was so much fun, and, and we just enjoyed it that much that we'd like to go back this fall and, and try it again. Great. You were selected to be on the cover of the Wheaties box. What is What is the story behind that? How does that happen? You know, they had a contest for uh, athletes who were making a difference in their community and doing uh, either philanthropic or socially conscious things to help others. And I was nominated, and I got a call one day that said, you know, you're a finalist. I didn't even know about the competition. I said, you're a finalist, and we want to fly you to Minneapolis to meet with the staff at Wheaties and interview you. And it was just an amazing experience, regardless of being on the box. It showed me that, one, there was a great group of people at General Mills that were focused on kind of this notion of social ventures and philanthropy and community activism, and, and that was kind of just a great thing to see. But as we went through the process, I kind of kept making it to the next stage, and, and then they brought us all to New York, and at Madison Square Garden did a, an unveiling of the box, and, the, and there were five individuals picked to be on the box, and something I never dreamed would happen, and it has spawned so many stories and, and things throughout the years, and it was just a, it was a, an, again, an amazing experience that never would have been possible, and you know, sometimes things happen, and, and you just you just have no idea why. <laughs> that's one. That's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, so many of the things that you've been involved with have linked to something else even more incredible and more outstanding. It's one of those things where I, f- I firmly believe that I am I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and I've always dreamed of of spending my life giving back and helping others, and I just feel real confident that. By doing these things, there are these linkages, and, and, and good things come from that. And, and just as when I had cancer, the first question you ask yourself is, why me? And soon you realize that cancer just does not discriminate. And it's the same in this situation. So many of these things have happened, and, and I've gotten to the point where I, I just I don't spend a whole lot of time saying why anymore. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's good things. It's not so good things. You have had that news three times. Yeah, exactly. And, and I can tell you that... It was no easier the second or third time. Mm-hmm. That that roller coaster of emotion and fear and anger and denial and frustration and you know all the things you could you can imagine, you know they came right back. And that feeling of being naive about cancer when I found out that I had melanoma, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I just learned everything there was to learn about chondrosarcoma, and now I'm diagnosed with melanoma and I know nothing about that. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this just the same experience over again. And quite honestly, it just buoyed my belief that that I needed to give back and, and help more people because I, I figured that, that this was going on all over the country and all over the world on a daily basis, and, and everyone de- deserved support and resources. This is the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin. My guest is Doug Ullman, and we've been talking about his work as president of the Lance Armstrong Foundation. Next, we'll discuss the stagnant cancer mortality rates among young people and lobbying efforts to increase funding for research. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on the Reach MDXM channel. Be sure to send us your comments and suggestions by emailing us at xm at reachmd.com. 
What does a desperate housewife have to do with the invention of the Band-Aid? We'll discover the connection on Spotlight on Medical History. Josephine Dixon isn't a character from the popular TV show. She was just a newlywed trying to cook dinner for her husband Earl back in 1920. Josephine had more than her fair share of cuts and burns on her fingers, but no way to bandage them. Earl, who worked as a cotton buyer for Johnson & Johnson, would make homemade bandages for Josephine by cutting pieces of cotton gauze and adhesive tape, which could be applied to her cuts. Unfortunately, these individual bandages were not enough to keep up with Josephine's mishaps in the kitchen. So, Earl placed squares of cotton gauze at intervals along an adhesive strip and covered them with crinoline. Earl told his boss about his invention, and the first Band-Aids were sold later that year. Earl was promoted to vice president of Johnson & Johnson. This has been a Spotlight on Medical History.